Hey everyone, Pastor Rick here. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. In today's message, we explore the growing feelings of cynicism towards injustice. This is such an important conversation for us to have. At our live events at 5280 Church, we offer a time of discussion. These discussions create a backstory that often frames my message and teaching. Because of the importance of addressing injustice and the potential to alienate others, I want to share with you the backstory that shapes the direction of this message. I intentionally do not land on a position or side with some of the social justice issues talked about in this episode. Yes, there are serious issues of injustice in our world. The ongoing conversations and activism are so important for us to be confronted with, even though they are difficult and frustrating to face. In the middle of these important conversations, I see a growing cynicism and dismissiveness towards each other, no matter what side of the issue and experiences we're on. These attitudes threaten real progress and change. Add faith to the mix and it all erupts into an overwhelming argument. It is these attitudes and feelings that I attempt to address in this message. I get personal in this message. For me, hearing the stories of injustice awakens my compassion for others and my personal experiences of injustice. Our current constructs do not allow me to share those experiences without fear of being ridiculed and dismissed. How can I heal? How can I empathize? How can I bring anything positive to the table if I do not come to terms with my experiences and lack of sympathy in the greater context of the experiences of others? Without healing, I bring more brokenness. I share my experiences with injustice not to diminish others, nor do I share my story to elevate my experience with injustice as being the same or as equal to others. I share it because my experiences have a serious and devastating effect on me. I share it because these feelings, if not processed well, will add to the growing cynicism and dismissiveness that will hinder real change and progress. My experiences will push against your story as well. What will we do? How will we respond to one another? Where in the world is God in the middle of all of this? That's what this message is about. It is my desire for us to be allies and not enemies. Let's learn how to overcome our cynicism and dismissiveness of one another. I want to begin with a question with you today with the idea of can happiness be found in an unjust world? Can happiness be found in an unjust world? You know, I grew up um, with a single mom, and both of my parents came from very uh, tough backgrounds violent, abusive, home lives, uh, alcoholism, and everything like that. And for my mom at 17 years old, meeting my dad was a way out. But they were two very broken people with their own pain that they were trying to work through that suddenly found themselves becoming friends. And that's where I grew up. You know, and sometimes we think that the steps that we take forward in life to find happiness and to escape and to, to just close one chapter and open the next, what we ultimately find is we open that new chapter and there are other challenges, challenges that we didn't come in. Things that don't add up, things that aren't fair, things that are painful and just as difficult. Eventually, it took my dad's life. 
didn't let my mom raise all two children on her own. No, no trauma of any kind. I remember days when my mom would be walking my sister and I to the grocery store. We would have tears on our feet, but my mom didn't have tears on her feet. She didn't have tears. She could find new tears for us that didn't have any tears on her feet. Before us, she would walk in the median of the road because that's where the grass was. And I remember very distinctly one day at an office of pulling over and picking up my mom and my sister and I from the handful of groceries that we had in the most And most of my time was in fact. There's always things that matter, like things that are still unfair, and you think that you would be able to find comfort and help and support in places, but you know when you step into, you know, the world of public space, you're just you're judged for what you look like and what you have and what you don't have and what you offer and what you don't offer. And so this overwhelming sense of never measuring up to anybody was kind of the pressure of my life and really the question that kept me from God and God. You know what I've learned in Christians and in my mind that we're about to do Knowing nothing about their life but imposing my judgment on them. They say things like, you know, we're praying for you, we care about you, Jesus loves you. <laughs> and they say things, I don't need words from them. And it's like, real, serious. If God is all loving and caring and all that, why is there no way to them? It's very simple. Yeah, we're very angry and very frustrated. The truth was, I found myself further down than I ever thought I was going to find myself. And it was there that I realized that in, when you're in a situation of injustice, God's presence is as equally there as He is when things work well. And at 10 years old, God. His grace and His power and His covenant and His very love can do some justice. And I wish I could say that that was just like this, because of this new French perspective and it's just all the greatness in there. But you all both know that it's a version of Christianity that's not really doing it. Because no matter what walk of life we are, no matter what house we live in, what background we come from, what we achieve or don't achieve, we wrestle with life being unfair. And we're going to actually look at the book of Ecclesiastes. This is Solomon, king of Israel. At this point in his life, he has built a world class empire, an amazing country that people want to be a part of. It was a time of prosperity and blessing, not just for him, but for the people who did Even though it was like it was unjust for him. And so one would say, you know, what are you complaining about, Solomon? You're sitting in a palace, you have 30,000 people at your disposal, and you're running this country, you have your, your access to as many women as you want, as much money as you want, whatever you want is yours. What do you have to be worrying about? 
But as you look around, he made these statements in, in verses 1 and 2, and he said, He saw all the affection that is done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And he comes to this very serious question, can happiness be found in an unjust world? When we're facing oppression and inequality and greed and adversity, as he wrestles with these ideas in this passage about the whole heart, is there meaning, hope, and happiness? And he's at a point where he's really, really cynical at this point in work. He's like giving up all aspects of hope. He's throwing his faith out the window, and he's allowing the spirit to grip his heart. And from this passage, we learn that there are about four different times that we can take to find happiness. Four different I'll be happy when statements to try to fix this injustice, this, this reasoning. And the first one I'm going to give to you today is this, is that I'll be happy when they get what's coming to them. This is beyond right? We look at the injustice in the world, we look at the oppression that's come upon us, and there's this little thought in the back of our mind, no matter how we church it up, it's like, one day, you day, it is still coming down on you. Some of us actually have a faith in that, right? It's like God, the Father, to the Father, us, and our heart from the, the oppressed, I'm the oppressed, and man, he is going to bring down the hammer. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, and I cannot wait for God to trust me. We and we think, we think that just for a moment, if somebody actually gets what's coming to them, it finally catches up to them, all of the ways they have crushed, all the ways they have hurt, all the ways they have crushed, if, if it finally catches up to them and they get what they deserve, they somehow will feel better. There's a sense of happiness in the world. And you want to know what it's like? It's like being a victim of a horrible crime and sitting in, in the execution chamber on the other side of the glass and watching your oppressor breathe their last breath. And you're thinking, it's never going to go away, is it? The person is gone, but the effect in my life is been. It's anything that happens. No matter what degree you take it to. And that's what Solomon is listening to. We see that. He said, again, notice that word in verse 1. Again, I saw the oppression that are done under the foot. This isn't just one area, one time, in this way, in instance, in this country, in this time, in this culture. As far as he could look back, as far as he could look in the world around him, as far as he could push. Seed in the future, all three pieces are wrapped up here. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. It was overwhelming. It was like scrolling through our news feeds and seeing that this person has great injustice that if you're a black person that grows up in the projects that you read very differently than a white person that lives in the upper uh, class suburbs. There is an inequality there. But we don't really understand until we're the white person that walks into the black neighborhood and then suddenly everyone's looking at us with suspicion. We wonder, is this what they're talking about? He's like, there's a question there. There's rich, oppressing the poor. There's, there's 
there's all kinds of men uh, oppressing women. There's women oppressing uh, children. There are men oppressing children. There's this conflict between gender and race and identity and purpose and worth, and it's everywhere in the And we read and we listen to messages and we try to pick the narrative that gives us the most hope. But we start listening to these narratives and suddenly we feel left out and feel crushed and it's like, I see what we're doing, but where are we really going? Where is this really heading? We want an end to it. We want the tears to stop and we want the peace to come, but it doesn't come, does it? We walk away from whatever message it is that we're holding on to and we wrestle with the weight and the heaviness of it. There's no hope, there's no hope. Instead of behold, I have perceived that this manger is anywhere I look, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. There wasn't a message anywhere that he was looking in the world around them. There wasn't a person around that actually brought comfort. And he was kind of the oppressors. There was power. And there was no I'm going to say something probably going to take everybody off, and I'm just going to say. The current social constructs that we're dealing with, and the opposition to the, the constructs that we're trying to change, is nothing more than a paradox. It's saying, I'll be happy when the oppressors finally get what's coming to them. And what's interesting is, is when you grab that power, the question becomes, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to marginalize a group of people? Listen, I represent anything that's wrong with the world. I am a white, straight male. And I don't agree with oppressing anybody for any reason at all. And yet, if I were to speak up and say it's wrong, my voice does not count because I'm the oppressor. And instead of people being held accountable for their particular views, for the way they live their life, for the message that they carry, we're being generalized and looked into a group of people and have ridiculous assumptions made about them and tell me how that's not different than white people looking at black people and making assumptions that they're all criminals. Or looking at Hispanic people and saying they're all here illegally. How is that any different when we overgeneralize a population and we speak ill of them without even knowing the story? You tell me how that's not a polygraph, and you tell me how that's not a question. See, I have a problem with polygraph questions. I have a problem with the moral majority and the way Christianity operated in the 80s and the way it expressed its message upon humanity. I have a problem with that. Because it was a power grab. It wasn't a display of the greatness of God's power. It wasn't a display of God's kingdom at all. It was a power grab. It was a political play to get our way, to silence the voices, because we're too thinking lazy to evangelize and to change the way we do church, to get involved in people's lives, and actually live and share the message that we all struggle to live and share. 
And now here we are, now 30 years later, grappling with this question, why are so many people within Christianity struggling with the faith? I sat across the table again this week from another person saying, what in the world is church? Why do I doubt? Why do I believe? Why do I trust? So what, because I ask that question just about every week. See, what's happened is that we made the enormous the definition, the identity of church. And pastors have forgotten what it looks like to live their faith out in such a way that changes another person's life. And, and, and our ultimate goal is to get into your life and empower not to tell you what to do to grow our organizations, but to, to invest in you and empower you to say, do something in the kingdom that glorifies God and fits with your gifting, fill the world with his glory. And we're here, we're stuck. I'm stuck, you're stuck, we're, we're all stuck. I'm serious. Why? It's a change in the past. Who will be positive over the church? It's about money. It's about what? And that's what he's looking at. He goes on. And this is what he's doing. This is the despair that he turns to in verse 2. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Why is the patient unloved? Why does it seem to be so inescapable? Could it be to who we're looking that part of our life? Could it be that we're so crushed by the injustice around us, the injustice in our life, we can't find a way forward? And we ultimately come to the point where it's like, maybe, maybe it's just, those are bad. God bless them. And we'll have to deal with it anymore. And then we're deeper. But better than both, the living and the dead, is he who has not yet been born and has not seen evil deeds that are done under the sun. He is so wrapped up in that temple and holiness. He said, man, it's just too bad if none of us were ever born to see this evil begin with. And at this point, faith is not in the midst of all. See, there's a problem with you and I because see, faith is something that's supposed to matter here, but isn't fully realized until the other side of this one. And we get so wrapped up in what's happening that it needs to fully matter here that we lose that it comes to fullness in the life to come. And if we lose that, we're going to be looking around and saying, does it fully matter here? Does it fully matter here? Does it no, it doesn't change. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. There's injustice. There's injustice. There's injustice. I, I, you can't fix it. You can't stop it. You can't turn it off. There's no hope. Where do we go? But the minute you put it in there, the God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. Think about that for a second. You live on earth and there is a heaven that surrounds you and there is brokenness in that context. God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. Maybe our eternal existence is going to look a lot more like what we do here. 
some of the familiar elements, some of the blessed elements that we have here, and it's less about us being, you know, genderless and strumming hearts and singing praises for eternity. Maybe God is bringing about a full life to come in the world to come. And this is a glimpse. But it has hope because of where God is taking it in the future. Who's taller than you? Without an eternal perspective, without that belief system where God is bigger than us, God speaks with us, but He's ultimately calling us out and calling us out. We miss it. Solomon lost And it left them with no happiness. Worse than that, no promise of happiness. Better yet, if I never had been born, I'd be happier than I've lived in God. So you have to ask us a question. Do we really want justice? Do we really want justice? What's this? See, justice can mean this impartial settlement of an argument. Do we really want an impartial, fair judge to make things right for everyone? Do we really want the quality of being impartial and fair in our lives? Do we really want to look at everybody with equal value worth? Do we really want that? With no bias? Everybody? Not just what fits in the construct? Do we really want the ideal and right action? Because in our world, like, I don't want any truth, any standard, any cultural statement to define how I live my life. No one defines me but me. Do we really want justice? It's, it's the banner of everything we think of. Yet when you come to apply these things to life, it breaks down, right? And then there's this sense of justice means to conform to truth, fact, or reason. And then, See, justice is only looking at the value that we're holding the justice. See, if I'm the value of justice, then I'm holding everybody up to the value of my justice and everybody who's against me. But if the value of justice is the goodness and holiness and perfection of God, and that's the, that's the justice we're seeking, that's the goodness we're seeking, that's the impartiality that we're seeking. See, listen, the whole reason of justice is not any standard that we get to. How can anything be just or unjust? We know there's not a standard. So we call actions that are done out of feelings of anger and resentment of injustice. And what if I told you today that that is Webster's definition of revenge? Where is it, Rita? Where are we headed? I'm going to get divorced and pulling up the graph over our head and calling it quick and saying, I love you. I think we're heading to a level of despair 
to say, what have you done? Will we start to regret what have you done? 